This is Steady Habits, and I'm Mercy Quay, sitting in Sir John Dankosky. I'm excited to have the chance to share a really important and insightful conversation I just hosted as a part of the Connecticut Mirror's live event series. It's all about the recent controversy over our state's pardon and parole policies. Hope you enjoy. To go ahead and get started, everyone, thank you so much and welcome to The Breakdown, in-depth conversations with the Connecticut Mirror's Community Editorial Board. Today, we'll be talking about probation, parole, and commutations with three amazing women that I'm excited to introduce to you here today. So to go ahead and get started, Audrey, introduce us to yourself and tell us why you're here today. Well, uh, my name's Audrey Carlson. I'm a resident of Newington for 45 years. I live here with my husband and my two poodles. And uh, I am here today largely because of the, in light of some of the uh, latest policies that have happened in, with the Board of Pardons and Paroles and Commutation, et cetera, it has um, gotten our attention. And uh, I can't thank uh, Senator Summers enough for uh, being the best advocate, the best person ever to help us navigate through uh, a world that I was not really familiar with. So that being said, um, I guess you could call me a victim's advocate. And I'm not speaking again for myself. I'm speaking for all those who walk in our shoes. And uh, just briefly, to give you just a little bit of a prelude, um, 2002, May 22nd of 2002, our 24-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, was uh, murdered in our home by her ex-boyfriend, Dr. Va uh, Jonathan Carney, who was our veterinarian. It was a two-year relationship. It escalated into what we thought was going to be uh, a good relationship, and it didn't. He premeditated a murder by um, stalking her and loading his pockets with bullets, basically broke into our home, hidden, lying in wait, and riddled her with bullets. And when our other daughter uh, saw him, he chased her out of the house. And we will never know if his intention with those other bullets was to kill us all. Yeah. Thank you so much for your story. And it, I mean, your heartfelt um, sentiments are, are, are truly resonating with me. Um, Marisol, I'd like to pass the mic to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you here today. Sure, I am an incoming freshman, incoming 1L to Vermont Law School. I'm a graduate of Trinity College as an undergrad, as well as a grad student in public policy. I'm a formerly, in, a formerly incarcerated justice impacted individual. What brings me to this is the fact that I have gone through the parole process. I have watched these parole hearings. I've been a very big policy analyst speaker in many different things on behalf of criminal justice reform uh, from the inside and out. Um, and I'm looking to make sure that, I think the only thing I look to make sure when we're having these conversations is that all voices are represented and make sure it's a fair and equal practice all across the board. Absolutely. And before I move on to you, Senator Summers, I also just want to mention for our audience that Marisol is a member of the Connecticut Mirror um, 2023 cohort of our community editorial board, and we're very pleased to have her with us. And Senator Summers, please um, introduce yourself to us and tell us why you're here today. Sure. My name is uh, Heather Summers. I am the senator from the 18th district. I represent eight towns in eastern Connecticut from the shoreline to the Rhode Island border. 
I am the chief deputy leader in the Republican Senate. Uh, I've been a solo woman there for seven years. This year, we finally got another woman in the Senate. And I am here because of Audrey. I am here because of her passion and her uh, compassion and her bringing to light some of the activities with our board of pardon and paroles that many of us, and when I say many, the majority, except for a very small few in the legislature were even aware of that was happening. She came to me, she drove from Newington to Stonington to one of my coffee hours and told me her story, which I'm sure she will share with you tonight. And it is a story uh, that is a history, it's truthful, and it is something that you couldn't for me anyway, it was not something that I could just let go. It was something I had to act on to bring to the light so that everyone knew exactly what our policy was, what was happening, how it had morphed, how it had changed, and what we were going to do as a state to make sure that we are balancing victims' rights versus those who are incarcerated in our state. So that's why I'm here today. Thank you so much. And again, thank you to the three of you for what is sure to be an impactful and meaningful conversation today. Um, Senator Summers, I'm going to start with you and kind of keep it here in this realm. I think an orientation to the state of affairs is incredibly important. So if you can, just can you dive into uh, the state of this issue in Connecticut and what people should know? Sure. Well, I think it's important, first of all, that the people that are watching or maybe on with us today understand that not every state has a commutation policy. In the state of Connecticut, we have a board of pardon and paroles, and part of their role is to execute parole uh, commutations, and many states only give commutations under rare, rare circumstances. In the state of Connecticut, it was rare until 2021 when it became, I would call, commonplace, and we went from issuing three commutations over a five-year period to 71, 44 of which were given to people that had taken others' lives in the most egregious ways. And the commutation board was shaving decades off of people's sentences. That was something that was brand new to me. Uh, it was brand new to literally almost every person in the legislature with, except, with the exception of about two people. That was something that if you are not in the Judiciary Committee or not somebody like Marisol, who's very in tune to what's happening, um, you wouldn't know this is happening. And I did not know, nor did my colleagues, nor did the ranking members on Judiciary until Audrey came forward. So that caused us to bring this situation to light, um, to raise it in the legislature, to have a press conference on what was happening, to highlight for me the 44 people that had taken people's lives, sometimes multiple, in the most egregious ways that now we were shaving 68 years, 42 years off of their sentences, sort of in the cloak of darkness, because no one knew this was happening, and letting them be eligible for parole and being released. That was very different than what I had understood our judicial system to be in the state of Connecticut. We brought it to light. The governor agreed with us. He made a change in the chairmanship uh, the chairmanship of this board of pardon and paroles, there's 15 people only on it, only eight were sat. Out of the eight, three were the ones deciding who was getting a commutation, who would have an application hearing. Uh, so the governor, to his credit, changed the, the chair of the committee to a very well-versed social worker who's a woman who has been on that board for 15 years. She is balanced, she is fair. And I think you're gonna see a change in the momentum of that policy going forward. I wanna make it clear that I'm not against commutations. 
but I am against what has happened here in the state of Connecticut over the last few years. And there ha we have put people at risk because people that have been let out have reoffended. And I think that's a concern. So um, as I said, I just wanted to give you an example. I did a survey of the 50 states and our neighbor state in Rhode Island, the last time they did a commutation was in 1950. And it was done for someone who had already passed away. So commutation should be rare. Uh, we have other ability here in the state of Connecticut to modify your sentence. It's called sentence modification. I personally believe that that should be absolutely exhausted before somebody goes to the commutation board because we have in the state of Connecticut now having inmates be able to apply for a commutation and a sentence modification at the same time. Sentence modifications are done by judges. Many times they are denied. And then the next week, our commutation board in the past has granted a commutation. Very mixed messages. And uh, so that's where we are in the state of Connecticut. We have a new chair. She has just enacted a new policy, which is very similar to the old policy with a few exceptions. And uh, she has restarted commutations in the state of Connecticut. So that's where we are in a Reader's Digest version right, at the 50,000 foot level. <laughs> and, you know, thank you for that. I think, um, you know, it's incredibly important that we are approaching these issues with a sense of balance and a sense of understanding, but also a sense of transparency. I think one of the biggest issues that you are revealing is that some of these policies and some of these actions were sort of happening in the shroud of night, right? Um, sort of without transparency, but being balanced in that is a really important piece because, you know, Maricel, I'm going to kick it over to you because we have the, you know, the impacted person's journey, the justice impacted persons, because there's two sides of the impact, right? There's the victim's impact and there's the justice the justice system impact. And from your perspective, Marisol, you know, what is the state of affairs and how can we balance? And, you know, um, Audrey, I'm excited to hear from you as well. Um, Marisol, how can we balance the perspectives of in justice impacted individuals, especially and specifically when we know that there is a racial dynamic in our justice system? So first we've got to, so this is a very multi-layered, multi-packed question. And at first I have to respond to a couple of things with a couple of statements. So one of the first things I have to clarify and one of my concerns, I agree with uh, the Senator with regards to transparency and accountability. First and foremost, as someone who's justice impacted and as someone who has gone through the uh, Department of Corrections, I firmly believe that, however, one of the things I feel that it's a little one-sided is the fact that the state of Connecticut is, you know, we refer to ourselves as a second chance state. We, you know, we're very big on our, you know, second chance reform and all these different things. The Board of Commutations was told back in 2020, prior to the pandemic taking off, that our commutations policy was not progressive enough. And given the fact that being someone who was incarcerated during the time that uh, Chairman Giles was actually chairman, Chairman Giles came to the prisons. He walked around, he talked to people, as well as the fact that the entire Board of Pardons and Parole was at a conference in 2022 that was the intersection of criminal justice and policy in Connecticut that welcomed speakers from all over the United States that talks about this very thing with juvenile offenders and all these other things. Our policy here in Connecticut actually 
worked in a lot of respects because unless I'm mistaken, multiple people, including um, Ms. Carlson, Mrs. Carlson, I apologize if I uh, addressed you incorrectly. He was denied even a pre-screening application. And it also has happened in other cases. So it's not like the policy doesn't work. I understand that the commutations board was giving a rather wide breadth of discretion. And I think having somebody like Giles and having other people who have taken the time and being a former police officer with well over 20 years of experience on the job, I think that speaks to something to that effect. I'm not sure if anybody has actually seen commutation hearings as well as the board and pardon parole processes recently, the hearings. There are victims on both sides of this. We're talking the family, the people who lost their lives, but also on the opposite side of that. So there's no side that does not, is not impacted by this. So, you know, I am not gonna sit here and say that the loss of life on one side, you know, the Office of Victim Services and whatnot, our state is very well aware of victim rights. Sometimes I, I think though, that they only look at one side of the equation of victims and not the other. And again, it is not to take away the loss of life. It's not, I just feel that I think we need a much more equitable process that is fair on both sides. Because again, I think saying to someone who has been going before the judge and you know, this, this speaks a little bit to when people make agreements and say, they wanna make the pain to stop on all sides. Nobody wants this, not only for their victim, but also for their families. No one wins in this. Everybody gets hurt in a very severe way. And it's not again to minimize on any aspect on either side. So I'm not, nobody wins here. It's just, I think having a much more fair and equitable practice for both sides, again, to be mindful of the victim's families and the process, because I know recently there was a prosecutorial um, data analysis report that came out. And two, one of the most troubling things that I found, New Haven and Stanford were not a part of that report. And those are the places that certain things are coming back now that would affect very much commutations, sentencing. These are people who've been incarcerated, but we are now finding that they may be inappropriately incarcerated. So again, there's multiple practices here that affect commutation, the judiciary, the, all of it. So I think having a fair, equitable policy look, lens at looking at everything and doing an in-depth all across the board from our judiciary to commutation, to corrections, all of it. So it's only fair for both sides. Thank you for that. And I know that what we're talking about here, it, it differs from various levels, right? Differs for various offenses, right? From the egregious taking someone's life down to a misdemeanor and sort of thinking about the balances in between those two. Um, Audrey, I'm coming to you because I think the victim's perspective is also a perspective that is incredibly important here. And from that perspective, how do you think the current policies um, uh, impact victims' rights? And how does this affect the victim's overall well-being? Well, uh, 2002, we became members of the club nobody wants to belong to, the survivors of homicide. We were thrown into a world we didn't know. And what we learned was that for about 35 years ago, the survivors of homicide worked tirelessly to get the law changed so that a person convicted of murder, not manslaughter, no other nonviolent crimes, just murder, would, with no good time or parole, should serve the sentence in its entirety. And we put our faith in the justice system, and we put our faith in the criminal justice system and the law to believe that that would indeed be 
true. Both sides of the both sides of the fence. When we were in the middle of well, waiting to see if what was going to transpire in terms of going to trial or going for a plea bargain, it was a discussion that was held with both sides. So Jonathan Carney's family wanted a plea bargain. They did not want a trial. They understood that it was going to be a plea bargain that was agreed upon for 42 years with no parole and no good time. Had we gone to trial at the time, it would have more than likely have been 60 years. That in itself speaks loudly as a sentence modification. We trusted it. We believed it. Flash forward, last fall, we get a notification that he has applied for commutation, which put us all obviously in a tailspin, as many other families did. We weren't alone. And we couldn't really wrap our heads around understanding all of this because we understood that the law was ironclad. No parole, no good time. You're not, you're going to serve. You do the crime, you do the time. 42 years, murder. And we lived in fear, knowing that if he did, God forbid, get out with pockets loaded with bullets and a, an, an anger uh, issue, that he would come after us because he showed no remorse and continues to to this day. In fact, he lied on his commutation application that he never intended to kill Elizabeth. Rather, he intended to commit suicide in our home. The whole case was on premeditated murder that he had planned it for months ahead. So how, in terms of how we reacted and we went crazy, we went ballistic and everything resurfaced with our uh, PTSD. We gathered as many people around us to try to figure out what to do. And um, we learned about uh, the wonderful work and the advocacy of Senator Summers. And we did meet up with her. And again, I not to reiterate, but she basically said that um, nobody really knew about this, this commutation. And the commutations are intended to be indeed rare. There are other policies and laws in place for sentence modification, early parole, for the incarcerated to go through the channels and do it right. So we had to speak out for not only ourselves, but others, because we felt like we had to do what is right, to make right what is very wrong. And um, I did a program of study. I just want you to just, I just want to throw this in there because there's a mind-body connection in terms of well-being, okay? I did a study program uh, under Dr. Bernie Siegel at the Graduate Institute in Integrative Health and Healing, and I got certified master's in positive psychology. I know, as many others do, that when life is not in balance and things are askew, and we have a level of stress that very, I hope nobody ever knows from this, that it manifests in, in what we call dis-ease. My husband got prostate cancer and I got ovarian cancer. We're alive, we're fine. However, you know, you have to wonder, even though I don't wonder, I understand it. The level of stress was not necessary. 
and there was a lot of discussion about not letting families know that there would be that there would be an application for commutation or uh, unless there was a hearing we want to know it's like going for a, a screening do you want the doctor to tell you at the day of surgery or oh, we're going in for breast cancer oh by the way we have a problem no you want to know you have a problem ahead of time you want to prepare you want to wrap your head around it you don't want it to shock you as it already is so I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, we worked tirelessly. Yes, he was denied largely because of the uh, the intensity of the crime and because we had corralled around us uh, a lot of people to write letters in opposition and he was denied. However, with the new policy, he can reapply in five years. I don't think he should be able to reapply at all. And yet I understand life is full of compromise, as we have mentioned earlier, balance. And if it's five years, it's five years. And it's not, it was three through the other policy. And things need to be set in stone so that policies are, are set in motion to be a bill and that they cannot be changed and they cannot be altered. People need to know what they can trust and put their faith in the criminal justice system, largely because their job and is to keep us all safe. And you know, and I know the incidence and rate of uh, recidivism is high. And one other last thing, if I have one more moment, um, I did a program in the prison system with the incarcerated as part of my studies program. And of 50 men, I asked them how many of them were involved and took advantage of the rehabilitation program, only two. Only two took advantage of the program. And at the very end of my several month study program with them, only two of them said that they felt that they could break the cycle of violence in their in their respective homes, in their churches, in their neighborhoods. And that's a concern. If they're not going to take, if they're not going to want to help themselves try to embrace forgiveness and work and move forward so that they can be um back in society as valued members. So I hope I answered some of your question. And if you have any other questions, I'm happy to uh, answer them. Thank you. Thank you. And I think it's incredibly important that, you know, we want to avoid doing the conversation a disservice, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly important to point out that, you know, and the limited time of an hour and with the limited voices that we have on the call, there are people missing from the conversation, right? And we can honor those people by recognizing that they're not here in the conversation and with limited resources and time, we, we, we do the best we can. So Heather, I pass it back to you and, because I think that something that is incredibly important is understanding what the common misunderstandings of the system or um, so that we can shine the light on the process, both from the victim's perspective, but also from the perspective of individuals who are just as impacted for one reason or another. And again, I'll, I'll name that there are racial injustice issues here. There are um, poverty issues at play. There are the root causes of justice system and, and um, of being impacted by the justice system or justice system involvement can range everywhere from 
uh, mental health concerns, to poverty, to housing instability, we can we can understand that there is a, a, a plethora of issues that are impacted by this concern. So I pass it to you, uh, Heather, if you can talk to us a bit about the common misunderstandings of the system that we can alleviate right now. Well, that's a fully loaded question. I, I would agree with you that our justice system needs an overhaul. Um, I don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody in this panel has all the answers. We can only bring our unique perspectives to this conversation. And there are people at this about this com community conversation that are not here that you know we would love to have at some point in time. Um, I, and I'm not saying that I have the correct viewpoint, but I have a viewpoint that I think is very fair and balanced um, and respects the fact that our judicial system, yes, we do have more black and Latino people incarcerated in jail. And you can see that it is racially imbalanced, absolutely. And I think that has to change. I think we also, have to recognize that the legislature sometimes has knee-jerk reactions to certain circumstances. And I will give you an example. I had a conversation with a woman um, during a trial that I sat through, a triple homicide trial in my district where um, two people came to the town and they were going to exchange drugs for guns, it didn't happen. And three people were murdered. One young man was murdered. He was stabbed 21 times and left out in the middle of the woods in the winter. They thought he had actually uh, murdered the mother and father, but then they found him eight months later. Uh, that person had been released early from prison that came out of prison and then went to a small sleepy town in Eastern Connecticut where this happened. And one thing I remember distinctly about this trial, there was a young woman involved with an older brother who had been incarcerated and she testified against him and took a plea deal. And I will never forget the judge's words. When he sentenced her, he said, you are sentenced, you have agreed to this plea deal, you're waiving your right to trial, and you are now going to be sentenced to 40 years in prison, not a day less, not a day more. You will see your children when you're 62 years old. You will get to see them and you will get out of prison before you die, but this is what you're committing to. And I think we need to do a better job, whether it be the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the judge, explaining to families that what he said is not accurate, that they cannot count on the fact that that plea deal that they are involved with and they need to agree to in many of the cases, that that is actually not the case, especially in her case, because she's under, she was under 21. So, you know, that's a whole different ballgame in the state of Connecticut. Um, so I think that needs to be better explained to the victim's families um, at the time of trial, because they are under one impression in the ones that I've spoken to. And then on the other side, you know, the defense attorneys or sometimes the prosecutors will say, well, that's actually not, not exactly what's, what was meant to be. But the, I remember the judge saying that distinctly. So that's one trial that I sat through. I think the other thing that the people in the state of Connecticut had no idea what was happening under the commutation policy. I, I heard Maricel say they were asked to go speed up the commutations or look at them differently. And they took a pause and then they revamped the policy. I can't get anyone in the legislature, nor the governor can, to tell me who asked them to revamp the policy. That is unknown. I've asked that question. Nobody wants to take credit for that. So I'd love to find out where that is and who said that. So the Board of Pardon Paroles during COVID, you know, revamped the policy, but they were not letting people out 
that committed crimes that maybe we could all wrap our hand, heads around. These were not, this wasn't, you know, a young black man that got sentenced to an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of years because he was on a drug charge that were commuting. These were people that had killed other people in the most vicious ways possible. 44 out of the 71. If you read, I read them during the testimony. I remember them distinctly and they were pretty horrific. So to be shaving years and years off of sentences that were done by a judge is something that I think is not appropriate at all. And, um, you know, if you look at all the 44, they're online, you can find them. Um, that's the category of group that I have a really hard time with. Um, when somebody has, you know, gone out on a bad Tinder date, this is one of them, murdered the person, set them on fire the day before Christmas and had 68 years shaved off their sentence. That sends the wrong message, I think, for people. And another example would be, I, I met a woman whose daughter was murdered. She was stabbed 21 times. The judge sentenced that person to 15 years. But in the state of Connecticut, if you murder somebody with a gun, it's a mandatory 25-year sentence. And she said to me, why is my daughter's wife life worth less because she was stabbed and killed versus shot with a gun and killed? So I think the whole system has to be looked at you know, how long are sentences? What are the possibilities for modification? What are we doing in prison to make sure people can really be rehabilitated? I'm, I know a lot of people and I'm friends with many that work in the DOC and talk about things that really have to be improved. And it's a wider conversation, but our focus or Audrey and my focus was bringing to light what's actually happening in the Board of Pardon and Paroles. Because as I said, I work closely with the ranking member of judiciary. He used to be the chair. He has been on that committee for 26 years. He had no idea this was going on. This would have never had any light shine on it at all if Audrey did not come and talk to me about it. And when you started to go through and review the commutations, you saw that I believe the three people that were on that board went too far in what they were doing. They were basically letting a significant amount of people out that had committed horrific crimes that then they lied in front of us and said no one recommitted. And we found people that have recommitted severe crimes also. So it left a very bad taste in the legislature. I am really happy and I am really positive that the new chair who has the experience, who has been shown to be a very balanced person with the uh, credentials that are needed will kind of be able to get the whole group back in balance. They have made a few tweaks. Now we heard, I've, I've seen in the comments, people saying, Audrey, why are you upset? This commutation policy worked. This person was denied. But I think what they're missing in this conversation is that Audrey was one of those people that was told this is an ironclad agreement. This is a contract. This person is never going to get out. And yet here he is signing up for a commutation and for those of you that are not have not been the victim of a crime, you know, in her case, the loss of a daughter, it brings that whole crime right back to where you were that many years ago. And the trauma and the stress and the anxiety of having to get ready to fight somebody being able to get out on a commutation. And then to think you'd have to do that every three years. These people have already been given a life sentence. They've lost their daughter that person tried to murder their other daughter and perhaps them. So I think it's very, each circumstance is so different that it's hard to you know, make these rules and these 
policies with a broad brush. That's why I think we have to have a fair balanced approach to how we, we look at these. And I think commutations should be rare. We should go through our sentence modification process through our judicial system, fix that. And if that doesn't work, then we can talk about commutations, but you certainly shouldn't be able to be doing both at the same time. And I, I wanna pause for a moment because I think it's important and there are a couple of questions in the Q&A. I think it's important to really dive into a couple stats. So let's talk about recidivism. Um, the most recent study for recidivism in Connecticut was conducted in 2012 by the State Criminal Justice Policy and Planning Division of um, the Office of, of OPM, right? And the study followed right around uh, 14,000 um, male sentence offenders, um, just as impacted individuals, um, those who were incarcerated, right? And they followed them after release from the prison facility in around uh, 2005. What the study found was that in five years of the release, about 75% of those that were uh, being followed were rearrested and about 69% were convicted of a new crime. 50% were returned to prison with a new sentence. So that's incredibly important, but it cannot go without saying that the justice system is um, the justice system is also impacted by these huge, huge racial disparities. And Senator Summers, thank you for the moment where you said, you know, we're not talking about, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, the disparities um, that are impacted that you know black and brown people see in the justice system because we understand that that exists. What we're talking about is a slightly different issue. And Marisol, I'm going to you for this, but I really want to name that of the uh, number of individuals incarcerated in our justice system, 65% of those individuals are black and that uh, black and brown individuals are nine times more likely to be imprisoned uh, than white individuals for a similar crime, according to the sentencing project. So these are stats that are incredibly important when we talk about these issues. Um, but it is also incredibly important that we have a really balanced conversation. So Marisol, I want to go to you for a moment to tell us about your experience and what we can take away from your experience as a, a formerly incarcerated individual, justice impacted individual, um, as we create new policies in the state, what can we learn from your, what was your experience and what can we learn from it? So th this is again, like Senator Summers has said, it's a multi-layered, multifaceted conversation. However, there are three things that stand out from what Senator Summers, as well as what uh, Ms. Carlson said, Ms. Carlson said. One being we have to look at trauma. Trauma, when people are sitting before the judge and are willing to accept these things, the Department of Corrections and the state says to us, as incarcerated people, we do not have the capacity to sign anything and have the, we are wards of the state, if you will. People are standing before the judge at these moments. They are at the most utmost low in ways that I cannot tell you. They have committed crimes, a crime that I'm even as someone who's been formerly incarcerated, I did not go to prison for that type of crime. So I cannot even begin. I have friends who have, but I cannot do justice for those who have gone through that experience, who have committed crimes like that or have been involved in sentence like that and be able to fully do justice to the fact that I can never be able to explain the shame, the, the trauma and everything that they've gone through, their family has gone through. I cannot truly do that justice. So that alone 
the trauma impact on that for them, their families, and living with the shame of what they've done, not only on that day, but then if they do go ahead and try to do a commutation, we are now re-pulling it up again. And that is a process that if anybody who has done something and it sits with you, it sits with you for a lifetime, that doesn't go away. So when you talk about these life sentences, it isn't just the victim's family and the victims who not only have lost their life, uh, incarcerated people have lost their families to the system. They're not going anywhere. And that's a lifetime sentence because no matter, even if you manage to get out when you're however old, you pay for that day for day all the time. And that guilt sits with you on both sides of that fence. So that's step one. Two, Miss, Mrs. Carlson, I will turn around and tell you from what it sounds like, I think where the system failed your daughter, not just in the criminal justice aspect, but also in domestic violence laws that we that have needed to be re-looked at and really pushed long before the 2021 passing of Jennifer's Law. They should have been looked at a long time ago. And I think, unfortunately, that is where the system failed your daughter the first time. The second time is unfortunately at the, at the loss of her life, which again, my empathy and my, and my sympathy and my condolences. But being someone who has gone through the system, not only through parole, I've gone through probation, the system is set to where the sentencing structure here and the laws are subjective. That's the unfortunate part. And it goes all across the board. So whether it's at the time of sentencing, when people are in front of parole, this system needs to be looked at because it's set where people, no matter what side of the fence it is, no one, no one is going to walk away unscarred. Everyone is going to pay. And unfortunately, the way the sentencing structure is, right now it's set up where minorities are paying the major price. But again, it's on both sides. I am not going to sit there and say this or that. It's not. The system is not set for anyone to win. No one is going to walk away unscarred and no one is going to walk away without paying a heavy penalty. So that I already can say that. It's, it's difficult because I think the Department of Corrections, the state of Connecticut, the criminal justice system in the state, from judiciary and on down, everything has to be looked at. Everything has to be reevaluated because no, our system is not set. It's not extremely fair. It's more where sometimes it goes, the pendulum swings too heavily one way versus another, and there never seems to be that equal fair balance. So it's hard to turn around and say we can have a full conversation without one side or another not getting all their points across and it not being fair. But being someone who has been incarcerated, I've taken advantage of the rehabilitation process, but due to a violation of probation, I went back to prison. And again, it's dealing with that trauma that if you don't take and you don't deal with, that brings you right back to the same gates. So I cannot sit there and say for someone who has taken a life or was a part of something like that, I cannot withdo do their, them any justice in being able to speak on their behalf. But I can tell you as someone who is offended and re-offended, that you live with that. And you make sure day for day that you try to do everything you can to make it right, which is where I'm on my journey now. But not everybody has that opportunity. Not everybody is on that same journey. Everybody's different. But again, it's fairness and being, <sighs> crime, criminal justice, sentencing, one size does not fit all, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's very hard to kind of walk that walk. People are gonna, again, both sides of that fence, it's hard. So as someone who's been in the system, as someone who represents those that are still there, 
I, all I'm asking and all I want is to make sure that all voices are heard at the table. And again, not everybody's going to win. We're not always going to get what we want. Just make it a fair practice. So victims are represented, those who have been impacted and their families. Nobody's forgotten in the process. That is all my concern. Marisol, if, if you're not, if it, just the meat of the question that I asked you, if you could tell us more about your experience and what we can learn uh, uh, from it, I think that would be incredibly important. So one of the biggest, the, the difficult part was when I was sentenced, I remember sitting in front of the judge and being told by the judge the very same thing, uh, Senator Summers, that you're talking about is these plea deals. And what I wanted to avoid was going back and forth to court and sitting in front of a situation where you feel the most utmost shame, the utmost embarrassment. You can't make amends for that. It, you are, you just wanna make that pain stop. And honestly, it almost kind of reminds me a little bit of the DV stuff we're talking about because when I was not fully rehabilitated, that is what caused me to reoffend. I, I didn't deal with the trauma. And that's not to make excuses for what I did by no means. I didn't deal with that. But I remember thinking as I'm sitting in front of the judge, I numbed out and all, I, agree, I would agree to anything to not have to go back to court, not to have to live, relive my biggest shameful moment again. People will do like almost it's the same thing with DV. You just wanna make the pain to stop. Some people end up pulling a trigger. Some people end up hurting themselves. It is what it is, you know, it's, that's a hard process to go. That was my process. And again, I'm only speaking for one voice versus those who have done committed different crimes than I have. But that shameful process, that spiral, it's similar for all of us. It just comes to a different depth. And I think when I came home, that very same thing that was supposed to keep me on the straight and narrow was also one of the very things that terrified me because I got into a personal situation that my ex-husband put me in a situation where I could have went back to prison, even though I was doing all the right things. But the law was built exactly as it was, that if I committed, if I had police contact, even for a DV call, he would have been able to send me back on probation because I violated terms of parole or probation. So do you see how the system is a little geared where I was doing the right thing. I wasn't reoffending. I was home. I've been home for four years. This only happened to me in the last year. So this is our current policy. And that's what makes this hard to, this is why I speak so hard on this, on this issue where I wanna make sure everybody has a voice at the table because I've done all the right things. I didn't reoffend. I was doing everything I was supposed to, but they were in a position to be able to send me back to prison to do 10 years of suspended time because I violated parole, probation, whichever way you wanna look at it. That's difficult. So I can't even, that's why I go as hard as I do because it's not an easy process. And even when you try to do the right thing, you find yourself drawn right back into the same circumstances of like, how can I make this work? How do I not go back? But you do the very thing that makes you go back anyway. So it's kind of like this endless cycle. And sometimes you end up in circumstances that you never thought you would end up in. I never thought I'd be the victim of domestic violence. He didn't hit me. And the court said that to me. I couldn't get a protective order because he didn't hit me. He was emotionally abusive, but how, how, they weren't going to believe someone who had been in prison. And that's what he told me. And the police, when they came here, pretty much said the same thing to me. So that's what the system has this meant to believe. 
that once you're a felon or once you've been in the system, no one's ever gonna believe you. So that's the process that we're up against. So of course, and you'll do anything you can to agree so you don't have to go through that again, which is how people end up finding themselves in situations taking on 50, 60 year sentences because they don't wanna to have to go through that. I'd rather go back to prison or I'd rather sit in prison and make it all go away for right now because I can't deal with that. That's that trauma. That, that's what we deal with. And I say this as someone who's been home four years, you know, I'm going into law school in a few months, you know, and I've, I've dealt with the trauma, I've done all that, but that's the hold that the system has on you until you get from out under. And even then, once you do, once you have that, that inmate member, it doesn't go away. It just sits kind of in the shadows. That's kind of what makes it difficult. Thank you for that. And, you know, say one thing to Marisol. First of all, I'm really sorry about the trauma that you have endured. It's, you know, I can see it. It's written on your face. Um, we have tried to do things for those who are incarcerated to be able to, um, you know, have them have better outcomes when they are released. If you or someone like yourself who has been the victim of domestic violence in different ways, and that does not have to, you don't have to be hit to be the victim of domestic violence. There are all types of of ways to, uh, you know, be in that cir circumstance, which is something that no one should have to go through. Call somebody, talk to me. We can change those laws around domestic violence. But if we haven't been in that situation and we don't understand the nuance of the law, that's how we change the laws. Um, mm -hmm. When you said you were put in that position, you were on parole where you could have gone back because of something that your ex-husband had put you in that situation. Those are things that we can change as legislators. We can put in laws that address those specific issues. And that's how we um, you know, move forward with our domestic violence laws. So Senator, the unfortunate part is I actually just did a fellowship and I'm presenting actually in DC next week. Jennifer's law is actually the very thing that they put in play. But the problem with that policy, they didn't input the court implementation aspect and they have not done so as yet. So the, the course of control language that's necessary for DV has already been enacted in, since 2021. But right. when I went to court last year, when I filed for divorce, the man held me for almost six months in limbo because the court couldn't do nothing because that aspect of the policy hadn't been enacted yet. And it had been implemented. We should know too, because we can certainly um, stress our judicial system to act upon, you know, there's the definite, definite, you know, difference between legislative, judicial, and administrative, mm -hmm. but we certainly can put the push so that those, um, those laws that have passed are enacted appropriately. Thank you for that. Audrey, I want to round us out before we take a couple questions that were in the chat. Um, I think the word balance comes to mind. And I've said this a number of times, I, I, it is incredibly important to understand that when a crime is committed, two families are impacted, right? Um, multiple people are impacted and the balance is important. How can we keep both victims' uh, perspectives in the balance as well as you know the justice system impacted an individual in the balance while we're thinking about these things? That's a good question, and I wish I had more answers for you, other than the fact that, uh, uh, let me just back up uh, with Marisol. Our daughter, Elizabeth, was in this relationship two and a half years. He never hit her, and he never threatened her. So we couldn't get a restraining order because we didn't have anything concrete to report. It was just knowing your intuition is never wrong, 
that you recognize an unhealthy relationship. And this is what I do in schools. I talk to students how to recognize healthy and unhealthy relationships and never break up with anyone alone and hope for the best. In terms of a balance, it's another word comes to mind, if I may, it's compromise. Because I don't think we can go through life without compromise and seeing both sides of any story or any circumstance. And I think things need to be, have more clarity and concise language around both sides. And given Marisol's situation, she she didn't get the right end of the stick when she could when she had to go back that was just absolutely just wrong those that are in prison like i said earlier when when i spent a number of months in the prison with these prisoners that were um in for murder they can take they can go to rehabilitation they can learn how to turn this word forgiveness into something that they can leave as a legacy to their families where they are basically, how do they want to be remembered? There's a way for the prisoners to take advantage. And, and I think they, they should be going through these programs so that there is a balance so that they can find their way too. And for those that do get out, there should be programs set in place so they can feel like they fit into society little by little and gain the trust uh, from their families, their respective communities, and find their way. It's not easy, and I don't know. I don't even claim to even imagine. I really don't. And I have other friends who have family members that are incarcerated for drug charges and drug problems, and it's not easy. I don't, I wish I had more answers for you in terms of that balance. I think it's going to take a long conversation and a real sit down with no expectations and no judgment with just an understanding of level of respect. Yeah. I don't know if that helped. That helps incredibly. And I think what we're hearing here, right, is that it's a complicated issue that impacts so many people. And I think that, um, you know, Marisol's example is an example of someone who, um, the system took and then kept taking from. Audrey, I think your example is that of a similar coin, right? And when we really interact with these ideas, the best we can do is approach them with empathy and hope for transparency and push for improved policy. While understanding the racial dynamics at play, the root causes of justice system involvement, understanding that rehabilitation does not work in, in our uh, uh, Department of Corrections as it presently is built out, understanding all these pieces and still coming to the table to find resolve. To get to some of the questions in the chat, and um, we have a question here from Bonnie Dempsey and uh, Senator Summers, I'm going to go to you for this. It says, I can't find out if my offender has a chance of parole. How can I find that out? Okay, well, you know, depending on um, what the offender did or what the offense was, um, you can always check in with the prosecuting attorney. But if your offender is going to apply for a commutation, which would then make them eligible for parole, um, when somebody applies for a commutation, 
the victim's advocate or the victim's uh, services will notify the victim that this person has applied for a commutation. Uh, in the past policy, it was five days notice, which was something that we really had a hard time with. Because if you can imagine, and you're very busy, like I am and everyone else is, sometimes it takes me a couple of days to open my mail. Um, or if you're away and you get, you know, it's the weekend and you miss your mail, you could literally in the past have had two days before the person who was the offender in your victim situation was going to be ready for an application. And you had to bring that trauma together in that short amount of time. Now, under the new policy, they're looking at giving the family 60 days notice. And I think that's a lot more fair and balanced to give somebody more time to sort of digest what's happening. So if that answers your question, I hope so. If you're a person who is incarcerated, does apply for a commutation, you would be notified by victim services and the victim's advocate that that was happening. Some people do that to try to get uh, years shaved off their sentence, and then they are eligible for parole. Thank you for that. We have a few more, uh, uh, three more minutes for questions. I'm gonna try to grab a couple here. Someone says, uh, this is from Jason Wasserman. Uh, we keep hearing about both sides. How do we start seeing all people as human and start looking for healing for all, not just perpetual punishment and harm? Shouldn't people uh, who have done all that is expected of them be given a second chance? And this can be answered by anyone. So I'm going to turn around. I might grab that. Um, you know, one of the reasons I'm actually going to Vermont Law School in Vermont is because actually it started here in Connecticut, Connecticut Corrections, Connecticut back in 2015 and even prior to that started embracing restorative justice, promising uh, promise, the, the promise, restoring promise unit, which was the 18 to 25 units that they started here in Connecticut, which was based on restorative justice, ironically started here through the Vera Institute of Justice in the Department of Connecticut of Corrections. That is what gave me the thought process of doing restorative justice. That is also something we talk about here in Connecticut, but we seem to have allowed to fall by the wayside because it's that ability to have conversations between victims and their families and the, you know, and the, um, the incarcerated members family, everybody is able to come to the table to find some level of whether for either forgiveness or be able to have conversation in order to be able to rectify the wrong somehow. And I'm not saying you can't obviously bring back the person who's lost, but it's being able to have a conversation and gain some type of empathetic understanding on both sides to be able to find some type of healing on both sides. And I think that's where we're, we're hitting that brick wall is that our system swings with the pendulum of rehabilitation, but punitive damage. And nobody ends up winning because you have people like Mrs. Carlson who ends up reliving stuff like this. Not, it's not going to bring back her daughter, but yet here, you know, what, you know, then you have other people who will pay due to that fact. You know what I'm saying? It's like on both sides, no one wins. It's, it just, it's opening up the conversation. I think we need to re-embrace the restorative justice aspect that we did here in Connecticut again, and seeing if we can maybe have more conversations on this, be able to create policy that is beneficial to both sides, have a conversation. You know, it's it's the best that we can do, you know, because again, the system is going to be about compromise. It's not gonna be that it's more one than the other because that nobody wins that way. Or it seems one side wins and the other one doesn't. And this isn't about winning. It's about trying to make it fair and make it a healing process for both sides. You Thank know, you. If, if I can just say, I, I do believe in second chances. Actually, when in my 
former company, I hired all women that had been incarcerated. Many of them still had ankle bracelets on. I gave them an opportunity to work in a medical device manufacturer, uh, biotech company, train them. And most of them did great. I think we had one person uh, go back and um, sort of fall into a life of crime and ended up being an accessory to murder, et cetera. Um, but out of all the women, we only had that one person. And what I learned from them, I will never forget. Each one of them had a very unique story. No one started out wanting to be someone who committed crimes. Usually there was some traumatic event in their life. Uh, in some cases, it was like the loss of a child at a daycare who drowned or something. And then in these cases, they started to do drugs, then they started to sell drugs, then they fell into this life, etc. One person came from Cuba and didn't understand what credit cards were here in the state of Connecticut and stole credit cards so she could buy things. Nobody started out saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go be a person who's going to commit crimes. People are end up in circumstances that put them in a position where that happens. I believe in second chances. I was somebody who lived it and breathed it by the people that worked for me for years. But there are times at certain levels of crimes when you're taking someone's life in a violent way and there is no remorse on the on the side of the perpetrator. That there are people I've met that are their eyes are as cold as ice and they are not remorseful and they say they would do it again. There there are circumstances on people and individuals in that case where I think Yes, we have a, a justice system that needs to have restorative justice to it. We need to be able to have people serve time and then be able to get out and have a life and to relieve themselves of the trauma. But in other cases, the punishment must fit the crime. That's how I feel personally. And I'm talking about the severe cases, um, in, you know, in, in cases where someone's life has been taken purposefully. Um, so I think that there is a balance. We have tried to do things in the legislature. I know many of the people that are incarcerated also are incarcerated because they have addiction issues. We've tried to make sure we have medically assisted, assisted therapy so that those people can get treatment in, in jail so that when they come out, they're not going right back into the life. We've tried to create a navigator system. So when someone is released on parole, we can set them up with a place to live and a job. We have decriminalize things on job applications so someone doesn't have to say that they have been incarcerated. So we are trying to make small but intentional steps. Last year, we just passed a law that now if you're in prison, you can get your half of your CDL license in prison. And when you get out, um, all you have to do is take the part where you're actually driving the truck. We're desperate need, that's a great paying job. Those are the things that we're trying to do in the legislature um, to try to help those who have been there haven't able to be able to transition to a fully functioning life that is crime-free with an ability to support themselves and their family and have a new aspect on life. We are always willing for input and ideas. And, and I'm really thankful about this conversation because as Audrey says, it's not judgmental. We're coming from different viewpoints, but I think we all see the idea of we need balance and fairness um, to both the, that person who is incarcerated, but also to the victim and their family. And I, I think that we can get there if we have more of these conversations and um, you know, open it up to a wider community, which is tough to do. Um, it's always hard to have these conversations because people uh, want to like start to attack. Well, why don't you do this? Or why don't you say that? Um, and, and that's not, I don't think productive. I think having these in-depth conversations about every circumstance is different. 
you know, the laws are the laws and there's so many gray areas in between that it's hard to um, identify each individual um, circumstance. But I think we, um, if we keep these conversations going, we're gonna get there and I'm committed to doing that. Thank you for that. So we have a number of questions left in the chat and we're gonna do our best to uh, save each one and answer them online and post them on our social media channels at a different date. Senator Summers just gave a wonderful closing set of remarks and um, Audrey, I'd like to pass it to you and then end off with you, Marisol. Well, first I would like to thank every for being invited to be part of this uh, discussion this evening. Marisol, God bless you. I wish you all the best in your studies and we're very, very proud of the work you choose to do, and you're going to make you're making a difference, and it's just beginning. And I very, very excited for you. And um, basically, I just want to say thank you, and to continue to have more of these conversations, where we can all come together, at, at, like they say, the round table where every voice counts, with no judgment, no expectations, and just respect. Thank you. So, you know, I think, you know, Senator, Senator Somers says something very interesting where she says, you know, we try to make these conversations and sometimes they can very easily turn into these either shouting matches, judgment calls. And, you know, all I ask and all I've ever wanted to ask, which is, again, how she and I got into this conversation in the first place. All I'm asking is for the fairness and for all voices to be heard, because, again, I don't represent just I am just one small part of those who are formerly incarcerated and those who are currently incarcerated. There are people's families, there are victims. There's so many that run the gambit and many people have been on both sides of that fence. Some have only been on one side and can only see one viewpoint. I'm here to make sure that even if it's not only just my own, it's to make sure that there are voices at the table. You know, Again, we're not gonna resolve this issue overnight. And some people are gonna walk away not always happy from the conversation, but it's making sure that the conversation's had, making sure that the elephants that nobody wants to talk about, I'm more than willing to talk about. I just wanna make sure that down the line, you know, we get incremental change. We know bureaucracy doesn't happen overnight. We know policy changes. Sometimes don't always take effect the way we would like them to. I am just concerned and worried that I feel the community I come from, being those who are formerly incarcerated as a Latin woman, as a BIPOC community member, um, as someone who came back home and wanted to make sure that I didn't go back. I have friends who have come home and are having difficulties. I wanna make sure that our voice is heard at the table and we're treated with, once we've done our time, let it be that in the past. Because though society may have forgotten, we don't forget the crimes we've committed. So we gotta live with that. And people, our families pay for that. You know, we always talk about trauma. That's that trauma that, you know, it's sometimes it's a lot sooner and a lot deeper than just that what we talked about today. It, there, it runs the gambit. It's just, again, having a fair voice at the table. You know, again, I don't represent everyone, but I'm going to make sure that we do have a body in the room. And whether it's, you know, a small bit, I'm not always going to ring the drum as, you know, anybody who knows me, but one thing about me is I want to make sure that I present all sides of it because, again, I don't have all the answers. There's nobody else on this panel does either. Um, and my way isn't always right. I just want to make sure that we're heard, we're seen, and that there's 
a modicum of fairness. And we're all aware. That's all I'm looking for. Thank you so much. Marisol, Audrey, Senator Summers, thank you so much for an incredible conversation, one filled with lots of emotion, lots of heart, and lots of understanding. Um, thank you all to our panelists who joined us this evening for an hour of really heart-wrenching conversation. Uh, I am Mercy Quay, excited to be here with you all today to bring you these kinds of conversations from the Community Editorial Board. Please stay tuned for our upcoming conversations. If you are not a member of the Connecticut Mirror, please go to our website, ctmirror.org, that is ctmirror.org, and sign up for our emailing list so that you can receive notices about our upcoming events. If you are not following us on social media, please do so at ctmirror, that again is at ctmirror. And again, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you.